9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in frigidly cold New York City, where the dogs are freezing to the proverbial (laughs) fire hydrants. Um, uh, It is just awful. And, um, you know, silly me, we got a dog. So we actually have to go out and discover (laughs) what that is like four or five times a day. Um, And in in toasty, warm Washington, D.C., we have Joe Serencioni of the Plowshares Fund, and it's warm and toasty and southern and tropical in Washington, right, Joe? It's a beautiful, balmy 20 degrees. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, wait a minute. Maybe the tropical place to be is London, England. Um, it's, is that- it's pretty cold here, my friends, oh, and really? dark. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty cold and dark here, um, but that is more of a political outlook. Um <laughs> Um, what is it, is it, is, is it very wintry and nasty there? It, so the weather gods have actually taken pity on my wimpy Californian self and it has not been so rainy and has not been so windy. It has not been so cold. London has sent me a love letter this winter and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. By the way, I am ready to move the whole deep state radio apparatus lock, stock and barrel to your designated location in California when you want us all to return. We could have our own little, like, you know, commune <laughs> or collective uh, in Sonoma or go to the beach. Wow, the deep state compound. Yeah. In That's beautiful it. cow country in California. Yeah. I'm so love happy. That. And periodically I see, Joe, you're like out on the In fact, you're constantly like, you know, tweeting and Instagramming <laughs> or whatever. Of you like dancing on some beach someplace? What is that about? <laughs> I I try to uh, be a moving target, <laughs> and and like you, I uh, I moved south from the northeast down to what I thought was the, was you know mid Atlantic Washington, but it's still too cold. So I I try to get down to Florida, try to get out to California as often as possible. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. The only good thing the cold does is it is it it makes football teams lose to the New England Patriots, and I have to say <laughs> that is something that I'm super grateful for. We year in and year out. You um, know what I am grateful for? What's that? I promise I won't go on my extended Thanksgiving uh, gratitude prayer, but but I am grateful that it, there are, on the day we are recording this. 23 days until pitchers and catchers report for spring training and my St. Louis Cardinals drag the earth back closer to the sun and remind us we are in an orbit and winter will be over. <laughs> so, so, so here's the bet that we, that we need to determine. And that is, will the government be back to work before the pitchers and catchers? Are back to work? <laughs> an excellent question. Yeah, and, and and one that to which the answer is not clear. I should point out before we begin our serious business that 
today is also Martin Luther King Day, which is a national holiday in the United States and one in which we celebrate a great American who fought to provide uh, equality and fight intolerance. And it was marked today by the president of the United States and the vice president hastily adding to their otherwise unencumbered schedules a 90-second visit to the Martin Luther King Memorial, and they walked as fast as they possibly could, which for Trump may be a health risk, to right through it. You know? Okay, so yeah. it is yeah. disgraceful, but can I just say the political scientist in me wants to point out that this is the importance of norms, expectations of comportment, mm-hmm. and, and actually Martin... Martin Luther King's legacy that can shame presidents who a president who is a racist and who is inciting intolerance and violence to have to nonetheless pay homage on on our great national holiday for the man who made peaceful civil disobedience the path to greater racial recognition in the United States. The power of that norm is a magnificent legacy, Mm. one of many, but still, that that Mike Pence, that ignorant bigot, and Donald Trump, that racist, felt they had, that there would be political repercussions if they did not do that, is a good thing. Mm. Totally agree. I I was just you know, we, we want to know if you know if you want to add anything to that, Joe. I think, you know, another thing that's happened today is that Kamala Harris, the senator from yes. California, has announced for the presidency, and that has her alongside Kristen Gillibrand, who's announced, and Elizabeth Warren, who formed an exploratory committee. I will leave out for the minute Tulsi Gabbard, who's a complete nut job. But th- th- there are a bunch of of people who are running for president right now. Um, the majority of whom are women. And I think this is another shift that has taken place in society that's worth commemorating today. Um, uh, when you know the next election is going to take place in 2020, which is the 100th anniversary of women receiving the right to vote in the United States, first, of mm-hmm. course. Bravo, David. Bravo. <laughs> Well, it's you know it's it's a step it's it's a it's a step, but it's kind of an interesting one, um, and maybe we talk about it for just a second here. Donald Trump, who's a misogynist and a serial sex abuser, who has a history of saying really nasty things about women, now finds himself with a primary sort of political adversary, um, Nancy Pelosi, and facing the the, the likelihood of running against. Um, one or more Democratic women for quite some time until we get to the thing. And and it's just, it's got to be a challenge for him. I don't think he's used to dealing with um, uh, women. We, we saw him struggle with it with Hillary Clinton, but this is going to be more protracted than that. I think I, that's, oops, I'm sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, I, just to weigh in just a bit, a bit on this overall theme and this in particular, I mean, it's true. He's going to face, it, it looks like, for women candidates, you know, maybe more if Amy Klobuchar gets in, which is not only unprecedented, but you know, the funny thing about this is that it doesn't seem odd. It, even though it's it's never happened before, it doesn't seem odd. We've, we've now gotten used uh, to people. Ah, that's and, beautiful. <laughs> right, I mean, it, it, and Kamala Harris in particular, 
like many of you, perhaps I got I got her email today announcing the candidacy, and she leads with values. Her, her email begins: decency, justice, truth, equality, freedom, democracy. These aren't just words; these are values we as Americans cherish. And you can see what's clear uh, from, from her uh, approach, from Warren as well, um, uh, that, that they're going right at what Trump has done to the country, how he's corroded our values, and his pathetic uh, prance through the MLK memorial, as you point out, David, just sort of illustrates that. I saw that clip. He didn't pause. There was no contemplation. There was no, I mean, how can you go to that memorial, we all been there, and not be moved by the words etch in stone, not look at, 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 at the, the, the sculptures that are there, not contemplate how tragic that death was. Nothing. Walks right through it. You're right, Corey. It's great that the pressure made him do it, but the way he did it, the superficial way, the way Pence compared what Trump is doing with the wall. Oh my God, that was, that was the most ridiculous political statement of the last couple of weeks. And I know how high a standard that actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well. So I, um, I feel like all of us should, should raise a glass to Hillary Clinton for having had the courage to be the first. Um, because as Tamara Kaufman Wittes pointed out on Twitter today, you know, it's easier to be in the second round, and and Clinton had the toughness to to be the first. And as Joe says, now it doesn't seem weird; it seems normal that that Democrats see a tactical advantage of female candidates stepping forward against somebody who's obviously a misogynist and who has generated really deep, I mean, if even if you look at just Republicans, the gender gap is enormous. And so, you know, politics is a, is a free market, the testing of ideas, the testing of different approaches, the testing of personalities. And, you know, Kamala Harris went values and personality today, but, but it's not the only approach, and there are going to be lots of interesting people turning keys in the locks, and I hope also Republicans will turn keys in the locks to, well, to see what, where this heads. Well, we do also have the possibility that uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, career um, as a politi politician will um, end in ignominy in the next couple of years, one way or another. Um, it will end in ignominy, whether he serves mm -hmm. two terms or not. But I take your point, David. Right, but you know, one of the poss you know the possibilities is that the next Republican uh, candidate could be somebody like Nikki Haley. Yes, uh, yep. and you could you could actually end up with a uh, Nikki Haley Kamala Harris race <clears throat> uh, between two people, um, uh, women, uh, both of whom have Indian American background, which also sort of reflects a shift in the United States. Uh, orientation um, towards the Pacific, which is a very different thing for this country, but is something that's going to play a bigger, bigger, uh, bigger role in its future. I think. I'm a little less sure of that, um, uh, and as you know, I 
I'm an a 19th century woman and a conservative. Mm -hmm. And so I was bridling a little bit. At, it, as still we were puts, it still puts David. you two or 300 years ahead of you, the rest of your party. So I... <laughs> and I was bridling at this being a competition of identities rather than a competition of ideas. But, but I, I acknowledge that I'm a purist in that regard. Well, it's just, it's just a, it's just a factor that an observer might say, that's also something great that, you know, yes. children of immigrants and uh, people who came to this country. Um, so I was, yes. I was thinking about um, this just as I may have mentioned in our last taping, I a couple of weeks ago saw Hamilton here in London and was reminded. <clears throat> does, it, does it end the same way? Do, I'm do, sorry. Do, does it end the same way? Do do we win the revolution? <laughs> it was really fun to watch a British audience react to the characterization of George the Third and his his smugness that John Adams can't possibly be elected president because he's just too normal a man. But the point I'm making is that everyone I know can sing the preamble to the Constitution, because all of us saw it on Schoolhouse <laughs> Rock, on Saturday morning cartoons. And it did occur to me in the last week, and this goes to your point about identity, David, and its importance, that um, children a generation from now, all of whom are going to learn about the Founding Fathers from watching a recording of Hamilton in their seventh grade class, all of those kids are going to think, George Washington was black <laughs> and, and won't and, that be wonderful? And Thomas Jefferson could rap, you and, know. And, <laughs> and, oh, the fuchsia velvet suit. But no, it's a serious point that culture, things of cultural importance shape how we view our history. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have to explain to the next generation of American school children that... No, George Washington actually wasn't black. He actually held people in bondage. And we need to make our peace with that. But how beautiful that they will think of our history in that context and have to have it explained as opposed to everybody, you know, feeling so comfortable and secure about these guys all being carved out of marble and, and white men being the norm for our historical experience. Anyway, I'm sorry for for getting on my soapbox. No, no, I think that's in, I, it. Just triggered another thought in my mind, and we'll we'll get on to our news-driven conversation in a minute. But it 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 and and this is may seem kind of a non sequitur to you, but as you were talking about that, I thought, you know, for two thousand years, most of the portraits of Jesus that the world was, got from Europe yes. were of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. Right. Right. And, you know, we sort of tend to force fit these personalities into the politics of identity of our moment. And wouldn't it be a great yeah. thing if we got to a moment when you didn't have to do that anymore? Yes, yes, yes. It does not feel like a non sequitur. Um, that is exactly the point that has been that I have been ruminating on as well. Have you been ruminating on anything, Joe? I don't want to lose you out of this. <clears throat> well, I, I don't wax quite so eloquently about these things, but but there's no better day to have this kind of conversation than uh, than today. And I'm also uh, struck a little more politically by the fact that all the uh, announced or 
likely presidential candidates are all making statements today, are all visiting um, primary states, at least, and, and, and making statements on MLK, for example. And then what they're saying is quite strong. Bernie Sanders was in South Carolina today, and he gave a talk where he says in his way, it gives me no joy to say this, but we, we have a president who is a racist. And it's something we all know. And uh, as Corey, you just said it in the beginning of this, this podcast, but it's not something that politicians at the very highest level have really been saying. And we're at that point now where they are, where they're coming out and, 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 and saying it. And that also was somewhat of an, an advance that we're talking about these things more, uh, yeah. more, more frankly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's quite, it's, it's interesting. I mean, just to take it a step further, I, I didn't really think we we're going in this direction. But, you know, one of the most amazing things of the past two weeks or three weeks has been the overnight impact of the newly diverse Congress. And, of course, that's been oh yes led um, by, by a couple of people, no, no one more so than Alexandria ocasio Cortez, 29-year-old congresswoman who represents part of Queens and part of the Bronx, um, who is a master at Instagram and Twitter and and is a lightning rod for the, the right. And she's said some things that were good ideas and some things that were bad ideas. And as we've talked about on the pod, she sort of helped reshape the conversation. But I was very struck, you know, over the weekend, and this may, you may think this is highly silly, but but I was very struck that there was a, a series of exchanges over the weekend about the shutdown um, and then about the division in the United States in which Cardi B, the singer, got engaged in a de- twi- in Twitter debate with Tommy Lauren, the idiot, uh, a, a right <laughs> wing nitwit, um, um, I, I had to ask my son about this. I said, "Who is this person? What is a what is a Cardi B?" And so he had to explain well, well, this to him. She's the number. She's I think the top selling musical artist in the world right now. But she's also from the Bronx, and mm-hmm. she is also very outspoken. And she's you know she's not a politician, but she sort of weighed in on this whole thing. And then Alexandria Ocasio Cortez got on the back of it. And I thought, literally, you know, certainly ten years ago, probably five years ago. The notion that somehow these two women from the Bronx would right. be leading a public debate in the United States about some of these issues and 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 not just chiming in but shaping the opinion that's a that's a big shift too. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. I mean, one quick I mean, before I'm you so go, sorry, go ahead, Joe. What, one quick thing, you know, uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio Cortez gave her first House speech a few days ago. I think it was on Thursday. And it immediately became the most watched video in C-SPAN's history. You know, wait a minute, wait, what? And it's not, I mean, it was a good speech, but but it was because of her skill at uh, communications, especially s- social media. It's because the intense interest that, that she's garnered. And I think this is a good thing. I don't think she's, frankly, I don't think she's getting too much attention. She is overshadowing uh, many of the other freshmen in what is the the most diverse class of freshmen ever to enter the House of, of Representatives. But she's also like a snowplow. She's sort of making way for them. She's clearing a path and giving space 
for others to talk. And I'm sure you know she can't maintain this supernova status forever. It will dim a bit as others make their mark. So um, I too think both the diversity and the rambunctiousness of the new Congresswomen and men is good for the country. Um, in part because I think a lot of the political tumult we have experienced in the last decade or so is a function of people feeling like that, that the government's so distant and politicians are so inauthentic and, and unreachable and just keep getting reelected whether they are representative of their districts or not. And so, so, yeah, I think it's wonderful. It's exactly the kind of vitality that the House of Representatives is supposed to provide for the country. I also laughed so hard at the Twitter exchange between Cardi B and some guy who wrote in and sort of said, yeah, why don't you pay for my health care? And she gave a better answer than any Republican has on tax policy in a generation, which was to say, I pay about $9 million in, ta in taxes. I actually do pay for your health care. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was great. It was, it was the second best thing she said um, fo following her threat to uh, dog walk Tommy Lauren, um, which, you know, may have been a little bit uh, rough, but uh, you know, the, the reality is that I think there's something else that may be going on here, which is, you know, when you see Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez um, or you see Kamala Harris or you see Beto O'Rourke or you see um, uh, some of these uh, other folks uh, getting engaged, um, the... I think they may be sending a message to some older generation politicians uh, that something very profound is changing yes. and yeah. that, you know, Trump won not because of his experience in government because he had none or his character because he had none uh, or because of his, you know, vision for America's future because it was all a fraud. Uh, he, but he connected somehow. And these people are saying, no, we connect in a different way now. We're a different society. We look different. We use different tools. And, you know, I don't know if I'm Joe Biden and I'm looking at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out there, uh, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can play in this game. I don't, I don't think he can, frankly. I think the prospects of Joe Biden making a serious run at the presidency are, have diminished because of the November election, because the new, new wave of leadership you've come. One of the other things they do differently is how they think about leadership. And you hear the use of this term now, and, and they use it themselves, activist leadership, meaning that they know this is not just about them, about them taking a particular position or going on a particular show. It's about their connection to the mass movements in this country, women's movements, civil rights movements, anti-war movements. And it's the power of what's going on out there that will enable them to advance policies you know, in the House, in the Senate, or as presidency. That is a new type of leadership. Well, let me put it in a way. It's it, not it, it's a new back. type of it's leadership. It's a, this is I, how the country was back. designed. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's back in a way that we mm -hmm. haven't seen it for, for, for a couple of years. Yeah, I feel the same way, Joe. I feel like um, there that a lot of the frustration that has been, uh, you know, electing more and more extreme politicians has been people wanting 
responsiveness and feeling like their government was so distant and so moneyed and so um, in, inaccessible to them. And the delight of watching people who are representative of where they're coming from. I mean, red lipstick and hoop earrings. I'm there for that. That's so much better than a helmet hair and a blue blazer. It, it's objectively in advance. The other thing that, that I think about a lot with the way um, the new Congress is settling in is it's also nice to be reminded uh, what good old-fashioned politics looks like. And I think part of the reason the first two years of the Trump administration have been so shocking is that President Trump so easily violates all sorts of norms, um, traditional practices, and laws in this country. And we were all sort of in shock trying to figure out yeah, uh, and what to do about it. And what I think I see most, um, most impressively by the Speaker of the House is that people have thought through, how do we counter what the president has been doing? And they, Pelosi in particular doesn't let the president define the agenda. She doesn't give him fora where yes. she makes her own fora. She forces a conversation on terms of the policies she wants to engage. What that tells me is that, first of all, Bob Gibson would be very pleased to see a brush back like that. <laughs> second thing it tells me is that American politics, which are really, really good at innovation over a five-year time frame, people are getting their footing again. The shock of Trump has worn off, and people are test driving what successful strategies against this president might look like. Um, and and uh, Ocasio-Cortez is doing it. Pelosi is doing it. Everybody's turning keys in the lock, trying to figure out what's going to work. And at least initial impressions are that a lot of these approaches are going to work. Mm -hmm. There's not just one right answer. There are a lot of right answers mm -hmm. to this. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think the House in particular is going to be the proving ground for these kinds of strategies, whether they're, they're detailed strategies like how much money should we spend on nuclear weapons or their political strategies like how do you deal with the president. And I would say the way Nancy Pelosi's been pitching, it's not just a brushback. I mean, she has Trump flailing at, at pitches and spinning around, right? And, and yeah. putting him in the dust. It's, it's actually, and, and there's... Bob Gibson hit 212 <laughs> and it seems to me over the course of this con Congress, Nancy Pelosi may hit the same batter 212 times. Well, but, you know, I have to, first of all, I love that analogy. Secondly, I, I, I also love the fact that, you know, we're not being ageist here when we're talking about a new way because Nancy Pelosi is in some ways the model. For this change, she has balanced it extremely well. She has embraced the new people that are in there. She, she you know, in addition to everything you said that she has done, 
she has refused to let Trump redefine the facts. One of the things yeah. that she's very systematically done is every time he comes up with a lie, she, you know, supports it. But I, you know, I would take it a step further, and this may be a little more controversial. And I'm trying to get controversy in here because we have the reigning and lifetime holder of the tiara of optimism, of course. La 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 la. La la la. And and Joe, who's in many respects, you know, soon we'll talk about North Korea, and he'll like say all these optimistic things. Very optimistic guy. But I, you know, I I actually think this is a very optimistic moment. Trump aside, and you know, you also have. Um, you know, the, you know, Rashida Tlaib of, of Michigan, uh, Tlaib of, 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 of Michigan, who is, um, Islamic and outspoken and caused a little controversy with her line about impeaching the motherfucker, but, but has been, um, David, that's was her little me. Sorry about that. That was, you know, that's, I'm just quoting her just re- don't don't shoot the messenger, but I also think something that's been super healthy, and this is going to be controversial, is that you have uh, Representative Ilan Omar, uh, who has also taken office, and uh, has you know they, they they have said a number of things that have made, for instance, the traditional Israel lobby on the Hill very nervous because they've started saying positive things about Palestinians and defending some of those perspectives. And, you know, gosh, I, I heard it and I thought that's how democracy in the United States is supposed to work. We're actually to have a first group of opinions. And isn't it good that those voices are actually going to be heard in this debate? It's going to make it a better debate and produce better outcomes. Yeah, I, I agree. It feels like that, the sort of, um, uh, the gingerbread house is having the little s- sugar stained glass windows knocked out by people saying, but no, wait, my perspective hasn't mm-hmm. been, hasn't been reflected. I want it reflected. And I agree. That's a fundamentally healthy, happy sign for our country. Yeah, I, 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 re- I, re- I really think that it is. Um, we've only got about 15 minutes here, and of course, I intended to devote <laughs> most to this. And we'll have to get to it on the on the next episode. But one of the things that's also been happening in the past couple of days, as we've had, you know, earth-shattering BuzzFeed stories that then got a brushback pitch from not uh, Bob Gibson but Bob Mueller, um, uh, which was, you know, we don't we don't agree with some parts of the story. Um, and 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 there's been a you know a lot of talk about impending problems for Trump is that he has tried to gin up some distractions, and as is often the case with presidents, he's turned to foreign policy to do this. And so recently, for example, we had a North Korean emissary come to stay in Washington D.C. at the below-average Dupont Circle Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where a, a, a Russian um, uh, uh, official not too many years ago uh, was uh, found strangely dead uh, in a suicide that involved bludgeoning himself in the head. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why people are going back to this hotel, but but so he's there. And the president's like, okay, so we're going to get back in the saddle again with uh, our North Korea talks and look how much better things are now than they were back with Obama. 
and I, I mentioned something about this on Twitter, and I was pleased to note that Joe uh, mm-hmm. came to my defense and said, uh, yeah, actually, things were better under Obama on this point, or at least things have deteriorated in some material ways under Trump in terms of number of nuclear warheads and, and delivery capacity and so forth. So I thought, Joe, this, this is one of your areas of expertise. Is this pure distraction for Trump, mm-hmm. or is there something that may substantively come of this? Distraction is certainly part of the equation. you know. For, you, and this is one way this summit, which is now expected to take place at the end of um, February, probably in Vietnam, it could go wrong if he just treats this again like it's a photo op, like it's something where he's going to get to play the great leader and say that the North Korean problem has been solved and just strut across the stage, that could be a disaster. Because I really do think this is a chance and maybe our last chance to actually get these negotiations on a serious track. So that's one big way. And there's multiple ways it could go. You never know with Trump what's going to happen. But that's one big way it could go, a repeat of Singapore, which would be a disaster. But the other way it could, could go is that there actually is a, a real concerted effort to make a deal. And that's why the Kim Yong-chol, that's the North Korean f- former spymaster who came to visit, uh, that means oh, you mean so encouraging. You, think he, you think he's a retired spy master? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like Putin, you know. It's, yeah. it's used, right, it's, former it's, spy. Well, yeah. and so that meeting that went very well. He spent two hours in the White House. Um, there was supposed to be a follow up in this weekend in Stockholm. We haven't heard if that happened yet with Steve Began from the State Department. But it, it, it does look that we might be seriously talking about not just logistics, but a possible um, uh, breakthrough. And we know from at least the South Koreans believe that the North Korean leader Kim is looking for a breakthrough, that it's not just a matter of playing rope-a-dope and stringing Trump out, that they really are looking for some to reorient the strategic relationship between the U.S. and North Korea, and they're willing to do some things. Well, that has to be tested. And if you insist on staying with the John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, unrealistic demand that North Korea do everything up front, that they completely disarm in, in, in two years, and then we'll think about release, relaxing sanctions, well, that's not going to work. So what you're seeing is, about, is a, an effort, particularly by the North and South cooperating, President Moon and, Pre- and Leader Kim cooperating, and trying to get a, 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 a step-by-step approach going where North Korea would agree to dismantle something, perhaps the plutonium production facility at Yongbyon, and in return, the U.S. would relax some sanctions, particularly the ones that would allow North and South Korea to restart economic cooperation, and maybe even an end of the Korean War uh, declaration. If if you're going to do something like that, Vietnam is a highly symbolic place to do it. Yeah, Vietnam so, is highly. I, I love the fact that Trump is now going to Vietnam again in this administration when it was so hard to get him there decades ago. Right. Um, so can I pick up on on sure. Joe's point? Yeah. I'm sorry, David, to come to come stampeding in, but I think Joe's point about the inter-Korean cooperation is a really, really important one because I don't know whether President Trump actually believed. Uh, in the tough line 
that they have been propagating about a mm-hmm. bloody nose attack, a preventative strike to take out the North Korean nuclear infrastructure if the North Koreans won't disarm. I don't know if President Trump believes it, but it looks to me like President Kim believes it and excuse me, President Moon believes it and that they have scared the North Koreans so much with American recklessness that it really incentivized the South, excuse me, they scared the South Koreans so much. It incentivized them into cooperation with the North Koreans. And what it looks to me like is that what I fear coming out is they're not, as Joe suggested, they're not going to get anywhere on complete and verifiable denuclearization because what Vipin Narang and Kit Panda and Joe and Jeffrey Lewis keep teaching all of us over and over again what the North Koreans mean when they say that. (laughs) They will give up their nuclear weapons when the United States gives up our nuclear weapons. So that's not going anyplace. The North Koreans held out for a summit. President's going to give it to them to be a distraction. And I genuinely fear that that they will make an asymmetric bargain, that the North agrees in the future they will dismantle something, and the U.S. removes troops from South Korea. And the South Koreans may just agree because they're so scared of the recklessness Mm -hmm. that the Trump administration has injected into this. And so that will make for a much more brittle, much more unstable peace on the Korean Peninsula. I have to say, it, you know, it's, it's it's kind of striking to listen to this kind of speculation in the context of the government shutdown, where the president of the United States is showing absolutely no flexibility with regard to a vanity racist project on the border um, and, and is willing to shut down the U.S. government and give up nothing effectively in exchange for that. Um, but because he thinks he would get a political win from North Korea, uh, the expectation is that he would cut a deal that might not be in the U.S.'s interest. Although clearly, Joe, as you point out, there there's some ways we could gain. Joe, I'd like your comment. You know, President made a statement about this, and within no time at all, 17 hours or something like that, CSIS put out a study that there's yet another secret bis- <sighs> ballistic missile site discovered in North Korea, and that there are perhaps 20 undisclosed secret ballistic missile sites in North Korea, um, and that the North Koreans are actually motoring along, building weapons, expanding their delivery capacity throughout all of this, um, and that, in fact, you know, there's no reason necessarily to assume that's going to stop, right? Right. So there's two levels of this. What is actually going on, and then what is the debate about what's actually going on? And this is where Trump is wrong that we're better off now than when we were under Obama. Under Obama, the North Koreans had not tested a hydrogen bomb. They had not tested an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach the continental United States. They tested both under Trump within months, actually, of his inauguration. So they now have advanced their capability uh, much more than they had ever, ever had during Obama. They have the capability to put a hydrogen bomb pretty much on any target they want in the United States, and perhaps more than, more than one. They've also continued their production 
of nuclear weapons and nuclear material, we estimate they can build or produce enough material for somewhere between five and 10 nuclear warheads uh, every year. And this is what you see in the CIS report being disclosed. They, they haven't shut down their missile bases. Their work continues on their missile bases. But here's where Trump is right. They haven't tested anything um, since the beginning of last year, so since a year ago, when Kim Jong-un announced not just a moratorium, but he was going to end long-range missile tests, and he hasn't tested any kind of missile since then, and he was he was going to stop any nuclear weapons tests, and he hasn't tested. So that's good. What he didn't say last year was that he was going to stop making these things. So of course the production facilities continue. However, this January in his New Year's speech, he did say that he was going to stop making these things. Uh, but that's unverified. It's not formalized in any way. That's one of the tasks of the summit. Can you lock that down? Can you get that freeze along with the testing freeze? But here's the debate. I, I, I guess I, I'm on I'm somewhat critical of the way Washington discusses this, like the CSIS report, which is an interesting historical document about a missile base that began in the 1960s. This has been around for a long time. It's not unknown to the United States. We've photographed every square inch of North Korea. We know what missile bases they have. Was It was even publicly disclosed back in 1999. You know, people tweeted, not tweeted, that was before Twitter, but has satellites photographs of this. I, I'm afraid that that this the fact that the North Koreans are still continuing activities is used as somehow a sign of duplicity. And the fact that they haven't disclosed this is seen as duplicity. It's not. It's common sense. Kim Jong-un doesn't want to give a complete disclosure for ba- all his bases to the United States because he thinks that's the equivalent of giving them a target list of just verifying. So why would he do that? And so you got to give up this idea of, of a complete declaration, an, an, an all or nothing approach. And the only way this is gonna work is if you take, agree to something. And apparently they are willing to close down, they're one of their major, their only plutonium production facility in exchange for a declaration. A decla- How many times have sanctions. they closed this? How many times have they closed or destroyed this by now? But, but then the deals to do that fell apart because of, frankly, duplicity and intransigence on, on both sides. And so the task is to get a, a shutdown this time that moves towards that goal of irreversible, of complete, um, and, 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 and move it in a step-by-step fashion. And then we can test this notion that I believe that Kim wants a fundamentally new strategic relationship with the United States, and he's not just buying time. And in my view, for Kim, Removal of U.S. troops really isn't a priority. He kind of likes having those U.S. troops there. This is more Trump's idea than his. Trump, who deals with our bases and our alliances as if they were stores that he wants to close because he doesn't think they're profitable anymore. So I agree with you that 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 Trump wants troops off the Korean Peninsula. But I'm a lot less confident than you that the North Koreans are indifferent to it. Um, I'm also a lot less confident than you that um, uh, that the North Koreans, well, I think they do want a whole new relationship. They want us to acknowledge them as a nuclear power uh-huh. and move on and lift <laughs> sanctions. And I just, I'm, 
I see why they want it. I would want it too if I were them. But I'm not quite sure where nonproliferation goes if we accept that deal. Joe, I'd love to hear your answer, your thoughts on whether the the North Korean case is important precedentially, or am I mistakenly hung up on that? No, you're not. We, we cannot accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state because of what the neighbors would do. And it's not some abstract idea of the regime and therefore Brazil would decide it wants a nuclear weapon. No, it's because of what South Korea would do, or more importantly, what Japan would do. You know, and, and, and that's where the whole you know, ball starts to unravel. So you can't do that. So put this, but how do you get to the point where they're willing to give up their nuclear weapons? Or let me put it, how do you test the proposition that they might be willing to give up their nuclear weapons? Well, you start the process. And that process looks a lot more like the Iran deal than the Trump administration would ever be likely to admit. A rollback, a freeze. And then yeah. a long time, in order to get to that end point of them giving up their weapons, you have to have a different strategic relationship that's going to take a decade or more to change. Persuasively argued, my friend. <laughs> but you're still not convinced, but that's okay. Uh, well, no, it, I, I think it's persuasive. And I think we need to watch this with this kind of level of uh, analysis and, and forethought. And unfortunately... I don't think that entered into the president's announcement <laughs> at all. No. No, I, David, I that's but, so and, unkind. But you see, once you say that, the, the, you realize that the greatest obstacle to getting a deal may not be North Korean intransigence or duplicity. It could be Trump's sheer incompetence that he can't yeah. make a deal that that that's that's worth it's that's worth making. Well, it's true. I think another hot possibility there, and we're coming up towards the end of our time, is Trump is hostage to his base. Um, and he's hostage to his base in a way that I don't think a lot of people have fully thought through. You know, think back just a few weeks in December, the House of Representatives, uh, the Senate uh, voted a, a budget bill through that did not really include much money for the wall. Uh, it was simply going to give, I think, $1.6 billion for that, going to move forward. Um, and uh, Trump, and, and we could have had everything running smoothly in the government. But a couple of people, the Laura Ingrahams of this world uh, and the Rush Limbaugh's said, you know, Trump is selling out America. And Trump was terrified that his base was going to think that he was selling out America and that they would start to abandon him. And of course, you know, that's bad politics. But for this president, it's um, existential. Because if his base turns its back and abandons him, then all of a sudden senators are going to start saying, maybe this guy um, is, is, is not our ticket. And we don't have to support him anymore. And it doesn't take a lot of senators to do that before he faces the possibility of conviction and impeachment trial. Um, uh, and, 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 and so I think, you know, we're dealing in a very high stakes world. And my, my, I guess my final question is on this, and either one of you may answer it, is I think that the, the Boltons and the Pompeos are connected enough to the right that if it looks like Trump is giving up too much, you're going to start hearing those hard right voices saying he's a sellout. This is endangering us all. 
um, and he won't be able to get there. I, I do think that's right. And I think in particular, uh, Bolton and Pompeo both have their own presidential ambitions, along with Nikki Haley, um, who, and maybe even uh, Mike Pence. And they are sort of waiting in the wings. And if this guy stumbles one way or the other, I think they would, uh, they would be more than happy to jump in and save the country. So I'm much more skeptical than either of the two of you are about that, because I saw no signs of it on Syria. Mm. Um, I saw no signs of it on abandoning NATO allies. I, I just think the, the um, Trump, uh, Pompeo, and Bolton... It may be true that they're both desperately ambitious to be presidents, but they're also desperately ambitious enough to hang on to Trump and and be complicit in all he's done already. And one of the things that's true about cult leaders and authoritarians is that they persuade people that you have done things so terrible you can nobody but me will ever have mm. you. And I feel like that's where Pompeo and Bolton. And many of my fellow conservatives are letting themselves be talked to. Well, that's a it's an interesting perspective. I wish we had more time for this uh, uh, in this episode, but of course we do in the next one. So what I would suggest is uh, that everybody out there in Deep State Radio Land who uh, is enjoying this conversation uh, tunes in when they can to the next episode. If you're a member, uh, you can do that right away because you can listen to them as soon as they're recorded. If you're not a member, but you're a loyal fan, and we're grateful for that as well, you can listen to them on uh, starting, um, you know, at midnight uh, of, of Thursday morning, if that makes any sense. Uh, the, the midnight <laughs> between Wednesday and Thursday, um, uh, and 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 as 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 people have before. But go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Look at what else we've got. Uh, coming up, we've got some terrific episodes of Washington for Beautiful People, of the National Security Magazine. We've got some really, really interesting guests um, and, uh, and, and new content. So tune into that. Become a member. Support us. That would really uh, help us do more like Yay! this. Yay! And thank you, Corey. Thank you, Joe. And everybody, join us again real soon for another episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.